Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people where this podcast is recorded. Today, I'm going to be talking more about the recreational legalization of cannabis that happened about three months ago in Canada. I first visited this topic broadly in episode 9 of this podcast, so if you want a bit of background as to why the Canadian or any other government for that matter would choose to legalise the substance and what some academics predict would happen, do go ahead and listen to that. It has been my most popular episode so far, so I wanted to do a follow-up three months on from when it became legal. I was hoping to have a bit more information for you on this one, but what is out there is still fairly limited, so this is just a quick update. On October 17 last year, the use of cannabis for recreational purposes became legal across the country in 2018 under the Cannabis Act, which creates a legal and regulatory framework for controlling the production, distribution, sale and possession of cannabis in Canada. It's a bit of a mouthful, cannabis in Canada. Under this act, adults over 18 or 19, depending on the province, are allowed to possess 30 grams of dried flour or the equivalent, grow up to four plants for personal use and make edibles and drinks, provided organic solvents are not used to make concentrated products, as this tends to be done for mass production and sale. So first, how did the journey to legalisation look? Well, prior to legalisation, growers that were producing medicinal marijuana were licensed by Health Canada under the Access to Cannabis for Medical Purposes regulations. As of late 2016, there were 36 authorised producers across the country in Health Canada's list. Sales were allowed by mail order only, but by late 2017, some major retailers had applied for a change in the rules to allow them to also sell the product. By the 21st of December 2017, 82 licenses had been issued under the ACMPR, but not all of the producers had been licensed to begin selling medical marijuana. Between February and early April 2018, some 89 additional applicants were approved as cannabis growers by Health Canada. At the time, the agency was considering the merits of another 244 applications. So this represents staggering growth of 577% in just two years. The market had really caught on to the idea that Canada was relaxing its attitude towards marijuana as an illicit substance and responding to the talk going on of recreationally legalizing the product. Once legalized in the fall of 2018 under the Cannabis Act, only producers licensed by the government are allowed to grow the product. As of early October 2018, there were at least 117 such licensed producers. When it comes to distribution, cannabis marketing will be closer to tobacco marketing, which is prohibited in Canada, with a few limited exceptions. Cannabis will be sold in plain packaging, and traditional advertising, such as TV commercials, will be prohibited. Producers and retailers alike will probably not even be able to mention things that could be important to the consumer, such as where it's grown i.e. by local, or if it's certified organic. This is, of course, something I agree with at large, as we don't want to encourage young people to take up smoking, but I do have some questions. Firstly, something I always bring up in conversation. Why isn't alcohol subject to the same rules? It is more dangerous to your health and consumes more government resources like policing and public hospital services. So it frustrates me that it gets to advertise on TV, during sports games, sponsorships, at bus stops, when it should be treated like every other drug. 
because alcohol is a drug. But in saying that, it isn't a reason to let weed suppliers undertake flashy advertising campaigns either. Now, my other thought around this is how will consumers know where their product is coming from? I'm sure there will be cannabis farms that are certified organic and who treat their employees fairly. And then there will be those who do not. So not having this information when shopping for the product could have negative impacts on industry workers at large and also on the environment. I wonder if there is a way to allow this type of branding that wouldn't encourage consumption. It's just a thought and I don't have an answer. All right, so what is actually happening with the market in terms of distribution, retail and sales? Well, I can tell you that in 2017, an independent analysis conducted by Deloitte estimated that marijuana sales would be equal to $7.17 billion in 2019, while the government estimated just $4 billion. The Deloitte figure seems more accurate now, as in the first two weeks of legalisation, Canadians spent $43 million on legal weed. And this does not factor in the black market that still exists. So demand is quite high. Not surprisingly, across the entire country, cannabis supplies suffered a shortage due to increase and rapid growth in demand. This is particularly worrisome to those needing and accessing medicinal marijuana. Users of medical cannabis can only buy products from specific licensed producers if they want their health insurance to cover the cost. When their preferred strain or product is not available, they either have to go without or pay out of pocket for products from a recreational pot retailer. So work does need to be done to ensure a stable supply countrywide. Either that or allow general retailers to accept insurance. Doesn't seem like the worst thing, but there is probably a ton I do not know about this. Though under legalisation, product quality is controlled, so the risks of buying from the black market don't exist anymore for patients in need, at least. So how do you even set up shop to sell? Well, this varies from province to province, and it sure is costly. In British Columbia, you must submit an application and pay a $7,500 fee, plus $1,500 in annual licensing fees. Alberta, not surprisingly, is pretty cheap. When you apply, you pay $400 plus $3,000 for initial background checks and then a $700 license fee. Ontario, in comparison, charges a $6,000 application fee, which must come with a $50,000 letter of credit. So it's pretty interesting that Ontario has made it mandatory to prove investment dollars. I'm not sure if they do this for any other types of small businesses or if this is something new to this industry specifically. This also doesn't mean that the investment dollars aren't needed in other provinces. What I'm talking about here is just the application and licensing side of things. When you factor in everything else that goes into starting a business, plus ongoing maintenance, health and safety, etc., the startup costs and operating costs will be much higher and potentially push out smaller sellers who are trying to break into the industry. At this stage, the industry appears to be set up for big business, those who already have money and investors at their fingertips, but this could also change, we will see. Now, considering federal tax revenue for a moment, if the $7 billion Deloitte figure turns out to be true, the federal government could pull in up to $350 million in GST revenue. $350 million could pay for any additional healthcare spending that may arise or support sending 28,000 children living in Canada to school by hiring more teachers and staff, improving infrastructure, etc. I don't know how many articles I've seen about crowded classrooms since moving here. Not saying that this is a Canada-only problem, but having this extra revenue is definitely going to ease pressure off government spending, I would hope anyway. 
Plus, also consider the savings of money and, more importantly, time for police officers who no longer have to deal with this as it is no longer a crime. On top of that, consider people who might have depression or crippling anxiety that keeps them inside and limits their interactions with their community and society at large. Many consumers, obviously not all, there's risks for everyone and everyone is different, say that cannabis might help mitigate the symptoms of these mental health issues and actually enables them to get out, work, study, live. So if you have a group of people who weren't willing to try the product and see if it works for them, and then it turns out that it does when it becomes legal, you have a more productive population who can earn money, pay taxes and contribute to the overall economy. And that sort of helps me to move on now to what I find the most interesting area of legalization, that is crime. A key objective of the government for this shift is to reduce the number of Canadians with criminal records. Upon implementing the Cannabis Act, the federal government announced its intention to issue pardons to those who have a criminal record for possession of 30 grams of cannabis or less, which is now the legal amount. We're now in January 2019 and this still hasn't happened. Legislation to do this is apparently in the works, but it is yet to be tabled. What we do know is that the $631 fee to file for a pardon or record suspension will be waived. Also, people with this type of record will not have to wait five years after serving their sentence, which used to be the case. So that is a huge plus for anyone in this situation. The lack of a clear timeline, however, is still concerning for those with minor nonviolent records, particularly given that this cohort of people is made up of already marginalised groups like racial minorities, people with prior records or mental health issues. This also raises the question, will these people be further disadvantaged by the pardon process? It involves a lot of paperwork and often people in these circumstances do not have the tools to do this alone. I sincerely hope that some kind of support will be available to everyone with this criminal record. So what is the point of doing this? Well, having a criminal record of any kind, whether you serve 20 years in prison or were just done for possession, makes a potential employer half as likely to call you back about a job or bring you in for the very first interview. Criminal records simply make it harder to work, which in turn makes it harder to live above the line and contribute in society. A study out of Stanford University conducted a cost-benefit analysis of criminal record expungement in the Santa Clara County. Overall, they found the costs of doing this to be $3,757, and the associated benefits are $9,517, mostly made up of increased income and tax revenue. So a net overall benefit of $5,760 is achieved when minor, non-violent criminal records are completely wiped via an expungement. I couldn't find any studies undertaken in Canada, but it is safe to assume that the figures would be similar with little variance, and that would really depend on the cost of operations to the administrators. While a pardon is not the same as an expungement, the criminal record still exists, it has more or less just been forgiven. Something I did learn which is also positive in relation to this is that an employer cannot find a pardon criminal record. So the fact that it is still there, at least it's not going to affect your chances of getting a job. Only the police and RCMP can do this. So when it comes to employment, we can expect the impacts to be very similar. It does also raise the question, why not just go ahead with a complete expungement and really help these people live a better life and lead to a more productive community? I don't know. It's something that the current government is being criticised on. 
So what do we know about how many people have these criminal records? Well, in 2017 alone, 48,000 cannabis-related drug offences were reported to the police. 80% of these were possession offences. So if we take just this year, we know that 38,400 people will have a minor non-violent record. This would, based on the results out of Stanford, potentially represent $221 million in net benefits across Canada for 2017 alone. Overall, more than 500,000 people currently have this type of criminal record. So when we consider everyone, we're actually looking at about $2.8 billion in benefits. This is, of course, not a well-studied thing. I'm just taking one study and looking at it in comparison to the facts I have about Canada. So don't quote me, but I'm confident that the impacts would be just as positive. The downside, processing times of a criminal record pardon are usually 6 to 12 months. So we're still at least a year away from seeing this become a reality. So that, my friends, is an overview of what the legal weed market currently looks like in Canada. Like I said earlier, not a ton of data at hand, but a lot of very interesting leads and potential developments. I know there's some stuff going on in the stock market at the moment, but I don't really care about the stock market ever. I just hope that the criminal record pardons happen sooner rather than later, as the impacts are so significant. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something. You can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics, or find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. We have a ton of awesome shows on the network, so do explore our website for more. Rate and review on iTunes as this is the easiest way to support the show. Or hey, we have a Patreon now. So if you're in a charitable mood, why not help our creators get free hosting by heading over to patreon.com forward slash cavegoblins. Every cent helps. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. My name is Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. Everyone is Jonas is a live-streamed, competitive role-playing podcast hosted by me, Doug Vandalay. Me, Eric Ivanovich. And me, Talia Murdoch. On twitch.tv forward slash cavegoblins every Monday at 7.30pm PST. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.